Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Mike Lacard. He is a speaker and public educator for the highest profile companies, media, and nonprofits in the world. Audiences trust him to use empathy and deep scientific insights to navigate the most difficult parts of the human experience. His newest book is You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. Great title, right? At the heart of this book are some central questions we're all wrestling with. Why is there such a gap between what you want to do and what you actually do? The host of Ask Science Mike explains why our desires and our real lives are so wildly different and what you can do to close the gap. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Mike McCard, a.k.a. in the podcast world, Science Mike. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Oh, so good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to see you. I interviewed you for a different podcast uh, uh, like a couple years ago. And I mean, outside of Krista Tippett, like you were up there, like that was my, it was one of the favorite interviews I've ever done for that podcast. Uh, that was about your previous book where you wrote about faith and doubt and recovery of religious faith. Mm-hmm. In this book, which is a great title, <laughs> I love the title, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, Embracing the Emotions, Habit and Mystery that make you, you, I mean, like, so this is, it it seems like a second memoir almost, right? Like a a first memoir, but kind of, but, but your last book was about your journey from kind of, uh, kind of evangelical faith to doubt, to re-embracing a more mysterious faith. And this seems like an unpacking of that mysterious faith um, in your own life and, and, and how you connect to others. I mean, in recovery groups, they talk about like the first third of the steps are about God, the second are about you, the third are about other people. And it seems like you're kind of moving your own recovery journey in, 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 in faith and existential stuff seems to be moving like from this connection to spirituality to how that actually connects with you and the world. You know, I think the way I work is um, I use the trapping of a memoir to communicate an idea. So there's like memoir-like passages in my books, but I, there's always some core nonfiction kind of education platform that I use the memoir stuff to basically keep people reading. Uh, it's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, I think. And so in the first book, it was the, the kind of the foundation of the book. The message I wanted readers to understand was if your beliefs about God change, it's still it's going to be OK. Like that's what the first book is. And, um, the second book is even when your life is so out of control that you're driving yourself crazy, it's still going to be okay. Um, and then, you know, I take memoir pieces to support that, to kind of glue together all the, uh, you know, the voluminous pieces about, uh, brain science, our nervous systems and our bodies. But ultimately this is a book about helping people learn to, um, love and accept themselves. And my restriction as a writer is that I'm a college dropout with no qualifications at all. So I can really <laughs> only write. 
yeah, I can only write about things that like I've been through and that have affected me. And then I basically, as a, an enthusiastic learner, share things that I'm discovering with readers with the like very, very, very uh, open, non-secret piece that I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a person who's trying to just get through life like everybody else. Yeah, but like now and right, you're you're a wounded healer. You know, I um people say that pretty often, I've noticed, calling me a wounded healer. Um I guess. I mean, I've been through I've just been through a lot. And so I've have had I've experienced a lot of pain in life. And so if I can offer solidarity with people as they are facing challenges and difficulty in their own lives, then I want to do that. That's kind of what I've oriented my life around. You open the you open the book with a suicide attempt story, a failed suicide attempt. You're like, look, I feel like the ultimate screw up. I even I even failed my own suicide attempt, right? Like, but that yeah. I mean, when yeah. you're writing that to your editors, are they saying, okay, this is a little much, dude? I mean, or, or are they saying this is this is the way to go? I mean, because that I mean that was arresting to me. Mm-hmm. Was that permission? My work, like in the sense of like, okay. I'm going to tell them like a failed suicide attempt. So if you're reading this book right now and you feel anxious or uh, you, you you feel the trigger to judge your own story and, and turn away from it, you're like, well, okay, come on. <laughs> like this is an invitation for you to excavate the, the weird parts of your own story. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, for a reader who picks the book up and is like, who is this guy? What does he know about suffering? It's, it, does this author get what I'm going through? Um, and I just wanted to start with kind of the most intimate, difficult thing I could share. Um, because that's been the pattern of my work now for, oh gosh, eight years, is to say things about myself that other people are afraid to say about themselves. And as I say it, to not feel ashamed, right? So most people who are suicide survivors who've made attempts to die by suicide, you know, they often feel a great sense of shame and inadequacy over that. And no one of their own volition just gets to that place. It requires an enormous amount of trauma and life difficulty. And so I wanted in the very opening sentences of the book to destigmatize and push back on the taboo of one of the most taboo topics that exists, and that's death by suicide. So that as we move through the book, we could just keep doing that, keep destigmatizing the things that people view as these kind of individual moralistic failures, and instead look at the systems in our society, in our culture, in our families, in our bodies, and in our brains that help influence those patterns of behavior that we don't always find desirable. I've heard Howard Stern talk about his show, and he says, you know, people like he'll have these celebrity couples that want to hang out with them and they're surprised that they're picturing like um you know all this crazy stuff at his hampton and he's like a pretty leave it to beaver kind of guy and he's it, it, i heard him say to barbara walters like the real me is on the show uh the, the 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 protected me is what you're seeing now and he he talks about like when he's at his best he free associates and does not censor anything that comes to mind he kind of like he just he he, he can free associate and kind of be present to the whole range of whatever's going on. And that, that changes the way he is comedically. It changes the way he is. You know, I heard Chris Rock say once, you know, who's the funniest person? Somebody asked him, he's like, it's Stern. 
They're like, well, he's not a big stand-up. He's like, but he's funny every day and, and for four hours. And, and his key has been this tragic comic view of like just trying to get into his own psyche. I mean, that's kind of, it seems like it, the message of your book. I mean, you're inviting people to have a sort of uncensored approach to their stories, right? The book is a book about loving yourself. That's that's the whole theme of the entire work is you are worthy of love and the person who most needs to love you is you. And that runs counter to our culture and most of our subcultures in the United States. And we try to push back with, against it with this kind of false bravado or pseudo narcissism to still mask our insecurity. And this is a book about learning to genuinely, deeply and profoundly love yourself, including the parts of you that we might have traditionally called a survivor self, these things, or excuse me, a shadow self that I now call a survivor self, um, that uh, are patterns of behavior that are born out of the development of our brain body system, both across evolution and our individual lives uh, that cause us to behave in ways that subvert many of our goals and desires in life. A therapist once said to me that he said, I never criticize a defense mechanism. He said, no, I think some are better than others. He's like, I choose humor over heroin. But all of he said, any defense mechanism is a sign that you haven't quit on yourself. And that, and that you've, there's something early on. You talk about this, how early on we're fragile and faltering and, and finite. And, and the world is painful and traumatic. And we develop these kind of defenses um, to preserve our humanity. And so like, even if you've got a toxic defense mechanism like addiction or or some sort of awful narcissistic pattern or something the fact that you haven't shut down is showing that you haven't quit on yourself right i go beyond that to not only not not criticizing i am grateful for every person's defense mechanisms including yeah. things like substance abuse and addiction and People I can I can just hear ears popping up as people listen. Like, how could you? I've I've suffered because of a family member's uh, substance abuse, and I'm not green lighting all behaviors or the impact of behaviors. What I'm saying is, when people have defensive affects, actions, and behaviors that we typically frown on in our society because of their impact on others, they're never doing that because they're bad or they're selfish or they're lazy, you're doing that because they've suffered and they've been conditioned to typically by a family system. And so the reason I say I'm grateful for all these things, including like I'm a compulsive eater, which as addictions and compulsions go, is a, is, is a relatively, people can laugh about you being overweight or fat. Uh, they don't, people don't stigmatize you the same way they do for heroin or alcohol, although there is a, its own stigma. Um, but I'm grateful for my compulsive eating because it helped me survive incredible trauma in the past. And my compulsive eating doesn't serve what my goals in life now. I want to be um, healthy. Uh, I want to have the energy to do the things I want to do. I want to live long enough to meet my grandkids. You know, all these sorts of things get subverted by that pattern that helped me survive. And so my work is not to feel shame and to force that part of me away, but to go, thank you, body, for trying to help me and protect me the best way that you know how. And we've got to work on a new strategy for whatever this is addressing in my life in a way that better supports my goals. And um, that's, a, that's an essential pivot because when we get caught in a shame spiral 
and a struggle with ourselves, we're, we're destined to lose. The part of our brain that makes you know conscious decisions and executes willpower is about the size of a quarter. So it's a tiny amount of our brain body mass. And when we've tried to put that little quarter against the weight of our whole body, it just can only hold for so long. But when we when we express genuine gratitude to ourselves in the moment we realize we're about to do something that is relatively self-destructive, when we can just say thank you for trying to take care of this difficult feeling, that gives us the opportunity to work alongside our brain body system and driving behavioral change as opposed to struggling with it. There's a book I read years ago called The First Christian. I reread it a few months ago, and it's by a guy named Paul Zoll, who is kind of uh, Episcopalian, grace-oriented kind of theologian. And he argues that like what made Jesus so radical, one of his, his points was that John the Baptist was preaching like most kind of second temple Jews at the time. Mm-hmm. Not yet, but soon. Hey, every everything is, you know, it's not yet, but it's coming on the horizon. Clean yourself up mm-hmm. and we'll fix everything. And he says, Jesus, the religious imagination of Jesus is he changes that to from not yet, but soon to already, but not yet. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's the whole space for everything that's been life giving the Christian tradition, <laughs> like from St. Paul to Augustine to Luther, like that you're, you're at the same time a sinner and a saint it, that you're a mess mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and beautiful. But I mean, that kind of space for uh, the already and the not yet, that there are beautiful things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that coexist among things that you think are pathological and wacky and weird. And there's a, and what you were kind of arguing is there's a beauty to all of them. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's probably hard to like make a taxonomy and you, you do do some great things. Like there's a part in the book where you talk about, you know, calming things and these kind of responses and what, 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 what humor and defense does. And we're all trying to reach this calm state. And, but I mean, that seems like you're basically continuing the work of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Like in the sense of just making space for the already and the not yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a Christian, so all that's going to show up in any of my work. The um... Mike, there we go. Like, let's do a press release. I got hot take. You're a Christian. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, guy's a Christian. The book, the book was born out of me reading Romans. Yeah, that's where the book came from is Paul's like dilemma. That's the literally the yeah. seed of the entire book. Um, so I just, I don't write like Christian books or not Christian books. I just write books like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. Have in them. But, um, yeah, absolutely. This, 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 by the way, have you ever seen that Bruno thing on HBO where he's like interviewing the gay converting pastor and he says, well, you know, we're, um, tell me what you're doing converting gay people. And he's like, well, we're doing a great Bible study right now on the book of Romans and Romans one talks about it. And then, Sasha Baron Cohen goes, oh, I love Romans. <laughs> <laughs> so like Sasha that, Baron Cohen, amazing. you love Romans. I do. I do. I actually literally do. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the book is in, it's full of my Christology. It, um, this invitation universally into reconciliation with God and also with self. Um, I, that's kind of the arc I see to the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible is this uh, reconciling work um, and an attempt to constantly like refactor and look at it from different ways and try to figure out how to get there. 
And what I like about that tradition is um, in a pre-American context, it wasn't so like individual sanctification focused, but more on, um, you know, the aggregate collection of sanctification and reconciliation for all. And, you know, when we talk about this work of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself, which means you have to love yourself. I don't think you can love your neighbor until you love yourself and love yourself deeply and profoundly because when we don't love ourselves. We have to be defensive constantly, don't we? Any criticism can knock over the, the really uh, fragile sense of self-worth that we've been uh, begun to assemble. And when we love ourselves, we don't have to have people come in and take care of our feelings for us. We don't have to constantly defend ourselves. We don't have to like worry this way all the time. We can simply be present with ourselves and with others. And um, that shows up in even bigger ways. You know, when we talk about kind of social transformation, when we talk about difficult societal systems that cause oppression, uh, we become less defensive about those things when we love ourselves because we're not constantly trying to do shame management. Um, so I think these things are wildly, wildly important and essential. Um, and I do think that they tie into kind of like you, what you're referencing, the, the work of Jesus on earth. So I, I just pulled up a thing on my iPad um, from Young, who has this great quote. He, he says, um, the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook on life. Mm. Did I feed the hungry? Did I forgive myself? Did mm -hmm. I forgive an insult? And I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, did I that that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all the beggars, most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness. And I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? As a rule, the Christian's attitude is in reverse. There is no longer any question of love or long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide it from the world. We refuse to admit ever having met this least among the lowly of ourselves. I mean, this is kind of your book, like <laughs> meeting the least and lonely and lowly in ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the goal. Um, um, I think so often the way that we are judgmental and dismissive towards other people is just a projection of our own shame. Um, that's why I think the the work on self and the curation of ourself is so essential in how we see every person. You know, I noticed a few years ago that I had this faith transition and I changed my beliefs, and um, and it lead it led me to accept myself more deeply than I had in the past. But what I noticed was immediately after that is I started to accept like other people more too. I was less judgmental of people that I would, uh, you know, see on the street or, or, uh, encounter in my life. And the deeper I've gone into this journey into accepting all the parts of me, uh, the more easily I accept others. Um, and I, I do, I actually think that's essential gospel work. When you say essential gospel work, like, so I, like I've listened to your podcast, like that, does that, when you say gospel, uh, is that the, an easy word for you to say, or is it? It is uh, now. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> but I, you know, I, 
let's let's be real clear. Like when I say gospel, I probably mean something really different than John Piper. Um, no, you know, you're kidding. It's, uh, the you're, you're kidding me. <laughs> I'm a I'm a contemplative Christian. Uh, I'm contemplative in a Trinitarian context, and so for me, there is a God who created, um, a God who uh, offers an invitation to reconciliation. We call the Christ, and a God who dwells among and within us, a Spirit. And um, this Christ is universal in its desire for all things to be reconciled with creation. That is good news. That is a gospel um, in, the, in the purest sense of the word. So uh, whenever I talk, whenever I say gospel, what I'm talking about is the reconciliation of all things. Why does everybody move near Rob Bell? <laughs> you mean L.A.? Yeah, like, like you and Pete, you and Pete Rollins and these people like, is Rob Bell like that um, magnetic? He gave you the name Science Mike, right? Like, My which is Sarah did, but Rob right. probably helped popularize Picked up on it. Sarah, yeah, I think she's in the blogosphere and things like that. But like, he picked up on it. Like, you're a guy, the irony is you're a dropout. You tell, tell us during your book, like, C&D's guy, you know, in school, um, just because you didn't probably have the context to harness you know you're getting bullied mm -hmm. your intelligence can't like you know your intellectual you know the, the quarter power can't connect with the emotional stuff you talk about in the book and oh my gosh you're getting shipwrecked um and you, but why move near like so many people move near rob bell and i've had rob bell on the show and i mean i i found like him incredibly magnetic is that just the thing he kind of he he does seem like a guy that's a connector of people that are doing things that are incredibly interesting. Rob is a great guy. Um, he's a phenomenal teacher. Um, Rob moved here because this is the city you live in if you're going to make a run at doing large-scale media work. Yeah. So um, I don't see Rob all that often. Um, it's, a, it's a big town. I mean... He, Two people living in LA can live four hours apart from each other, and um, but was that, did that did Rob influence your idea of moving or no? Um, sure, certainly, yes, yeah. Rob was definitely one of the people who was in the the chorus of uh, maybe Tallahassee's not the place that you can take your work to the next. <laughs> level. Um, is that is that descriptive or prescriptive? I don't know. I do know that. What I realized. Wait, were you were you in Tallahassee before this? Yeah, I lived most of my life. I lived in Tallahassee. I'm in Tallahassee right now. No way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Great yeah. town. It's a great yeah. town. But if you're if you're like making your living writing and podcasting, you're there's very few people doing that in Tallahassee, and so it's just harder to network, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that simple. Like so, a lot a lot of the most fun things I've done and things that helped me pay my bills, they've been possible just because. I live out here. Yeah. And um, although now, you know, in the, the safer at home order, that's not really a factor. But before that, uh, you know, the kind of stuff, the, the people you meet, the people you get up to, it, it's how new shows happen. It's how funding deals happen. It's how, uh, you know, I got to do some consulting work for Marvel Studios. That would have never happened unless I was out here. Which so, movie? Um, Started with... Um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and then oh my god, expanded into some other projects from there. How does that happen? Like, 
Now, now I feel like a real idiot. Like Howard Stern, you know, I remember Howard Stern asking Alec Baldwin, like when Woody Baldwin says, when Woody Allen calls, you go. And he's like, what does that look like? And he's like, well, look, he talks to my people. He's like, he's not calling me like with my, you know, um, you know, the housekeeper picking up. Is Alec there? <laughs> <laughs> so how does that happen? I mean, like who calls you or who connects you? Is it through a conference or through somebody that's like, connected to the spiritual endeavors you're doing or something that you get like, and you're a geeky guy like me. I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, I remember like every uh, issue of secret wars and all this stuff, like with mm-hmm. the beyond there and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you like, I mean, how do you get the call? Like, this is fascinating to me. I've got a manager and a producer and it's how it works. Like if you live out here and you get connected with some professionals, everybody knows how to reach everybody. If you've got a project to do. Um, and, um, you know, a friend of mine is, uh, Scott Derrickson who directed Dr. Strange one and is executive producer on Dr. Strange two. Um, and you know, I, you know, I can't, I, there's a huge NDA to do anything with Marvel. So I really can't give any, 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 any details, even like what, we talked about uh, or why they called me uh, other than to say I did act as a science advisor uh, on the projects that I worked on, um, you know, and that's just how it works. I've done several uh, shows and, and projects at this point in that capacity. So this gets back to your book, right? Like you're probably jumping into comics um, through trauma and, and, you know, you, you talk about bullying in ways in the book that are like, um, for people that have been bullied, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is an awful traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing like mm-hmm. some of the comic geeky stuff, right? Like, uh, is connected to like what you talk about resiliency in the book for, from, for, and from trauma. So, like, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, like, is that a traumatic experience? I mean, you talk about in the book, like how, like there are these times when you, you channel your trauma for, for kind of like like you've channeled it for professional gain and then yet it comes back at you and you talk about this incredible therapy session i mean how is this like uh does that intensify it i mean when you're getting like like how do you revisit that in the sense of yeah yeah especially in the thing like that you're getting super close to the flame of the thing that probably one of the things that got you through the trauma um that just seems like it's a great thing, but it also could lead to a meltdown. Yeah, I mean, that. so trauma is uh, our brains change the way they encode experiences anytime that our brain believes we might be in survival danger. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got tele- terrible allergies year-round. Um, and so that gets stored in our brains as trauma. And then that becomes like a backseat driver just sitting there every moment looking for some similar situation to come up. And if it does, we get triggered. And triggers can create panic attacks or create, you know, very, very powerful emotional upwelling. Um, And there are ways to explore that that is re-traumatizing. And there are ways to kind of reprocess traumas in ways that are not re-traumatizing. So sometimes when we work with mental health professionals, they help us reprocess our trauma. And sometimes we don't have access to those resources or don't know we have trauma or uh, don't have the financial ability to see a therapist. That is certainly a thing that many people face. We can kind of do our own trauma exploration, our own gentle probing of our heart and media is one way that we can do that. Um, 
Some people like, you know, you know, you're safe and you're watching a film, or you're reading a story and you might be able to brush up against something that feels unfaceable in real life, but feels uh, like you can stare it down when it's happening in a story. And that's just kind of um, all the systems of how, you know, we as humans uh, cope with things. So Americans have one of the highest divorce rates in the country. I mean, we are in the world, rather, like we are just you know, marriages break down. It's probably only going to go up with Corona. You have a pretty healthy marriage. I mean, you tell some stories where your wife is like adapting to all your changes. I mean, it it is remarkable. Like, I mean, she, you guys seem really connected and not without problems or tension. Like, I mean, mean, we had like a, a, an argument like 20 minutes ago. (laughs) What was the argument about? Um, I think tone of vocal tone. We're all, Vocal tone, we're all stuck in the house together. And so... Um, people are yelling at each other. People are, people are yelling. Some of us are yellers, and some of us are highly sensitive to yelling. There's four so of us you're the house. sensitive to yelling. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I mean, I mean, this is an interesting thing to me, because you're somebody that's demoralizing. I, I think often this seems to me demographically, like, the left, the blue states, um, kind of are libertarian on social values, mm-hmm. but also live conservative. I mean, like th- th- this is <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so basically, Oh red, man, I've noticed that. I mean, the red States kind of live wild or high on the higher crazy, right? Like boss hog, here we go. And the, the, the left, like, it seems like you guys have as, as, as people who, who have been on an evolving journey, uh, you live traditional yet holding it loosely. Like you're not judging anybody, right? But you actually cultivated really good family values. I mean, how? Like, is there a tension with that or no? You know, I think it. I don't know. You know, they they say that about Gen Z. Gen Z is like one of the most permissive socially generations ever, and yet personally one of the most conservative in behavior. Um, and I, I I mean social conservative. What I mean is very low rates of sexual activity, very low uses of substances, you know. Um, And I almost wonder, like, you become more permissive because you've suffered, typically. Yeah. Then you also become more cautious in your actual living. So what I I have noticed that with progressives, it's kind of like, whatever you want to do is okay. And what I want to do is have a quiet night at home with my family. And it's it's pretty wild. I have I have definitely seen that dynamic. It's like morally, I believe anything goes, and practically, I uh, I just kind of live a simple life. Do you like being science, Mike, or no? Today, what, what does that mean? I mean, like uh, you talk about in the book, like there's the, the there are these you've had awful bullying experiences, and mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it is. I'm reading the book, and like uh, there's two books I've read for the podcast the past two months that emotionally were like um, just gut-wrenching. Mm-hmm. One was yours. Another was Lauren Sandler's book, uh, It's All I Got. She she covered a homeless single mom for a year in New York. Mm-hmm. And and your story, and it was as emotionally conjuring as that book. Mm. Uh, and so much of what you're doing is like, you know, you, you're, you're making a living on this self that's processed, projected, but you're trying to be honest about, like, you know, but I think like Augustine, you know, is probably 
the author of the inner self, the Woody Allen self, like where we've got two selves, right? Like we've got the world we project outside ourselves, like and the world we have inner. Now we have three selves. We've got avatars. So I mean, science, Mike, is an avatar. I mean, it, 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 again, I'm not saying that judgmentally. It's just an avatar. Like we all have avatars because we're in digital things. Like, I mean, how 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 is science, Mike, today? Growing, changing, you know. Um, I mean, there's it's notable there to differentiate between me, the person, and me, the media figure. I am learning to enjoy my work more again as I learn to be less codependent and less exploitive of myself. And I share those things that I'm able to share without costing me some sense of dignity or value of self-worth. And again, no one ever pressures me to do that. It's me uh, pressuring me. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I was doing really well before the pandemic. <laughs> um, and then there's been a lot of challenges. You know, I'm a, uh, my income comes from selling tickets to events. There are no events. There are no events on the horizon. So that's challenging. Uh, the, the stress that puts me under financially means that I've, I've regressed pretty hard in certain patterns of codependency and compulsive eating. Uh, and I'm also doing pizzas. Pizzas. Uh, I've really cut the pizza out. What are you eating right now that's compulsive? It was Oreos for a while. What we do is when we realize that there's something that I'm just hitting like a drug, I communicate that to my family. Um, we, and Jenny's just not getting any Oreos now. So, Do you eat a standard Oreo or do you eat like the double stuff or the this? Because now Oreos have... have, have oh, there's many. Too. As yeah. long as it's like the basic um, Oreo, like it doesn't have any extra flavor, uh, then I'm fine. I haven't eaten Oreo in a while, but do you like when I used to eat Oreos, I would pull it apart and lick the the frosting off the bottom mm -hmm. thing, like because I wanted the frosting all by itself, and then I'd crunch. Do, or what do you do? Do you just put I it whole oh, cookie? Yeah, you just pop it right in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Do you chase it with anything? Milk or anything or Merlot another, or another Oreo? Another so your Oreo chaser is an Oreo. Absolutely. Yeah, if I'm going to eat an Oreo, I'm going to eat eight. Um, and that's that's what I mean. That's the compulsive eating pattern. I'm not eating to enjoy the flavor. I'm eating to regulate my feelings. But if you don't like Oreos that much, why aren't you exploring? I mean, they're probably Oreos that you could, like, the double stuff, the triple stuff, the thing. Like, I'll eat the double stuff. Again, I've had them. Um, okay. Jenny got the double stuff sometime. They're fine. I'm not anti-double stuff or whatever. It's just when I'm eating Oreos, I... Is never coming from a place of health. I don't mindfully eat an Oreo. <laughs> you talk about this in the book. You say like that, you know, you talk about our brain patterns, right? Like a reptilian brain kind of thing. And we're, you, you, and you're like saying, look, don't judge yourself. But when you're in an airport and you see a pepperoni pizza at a spiral or whatever, then what you try to do is take a walk, you know, uh -huh. and just like walk around, like, because you want health. And it's not like the the desire to eat the asparo pizza is bad. It's it's that inner child. It's like it's just not helping you now. It's kind of where a thing is defense mechanism becomes an autoimmune disease, right? It's it's not helping you survive. It's it's helping you die. Mm -hmm. And so you just walk. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal. And like I say, that was a lot easier um, before a pandemic, right? So if, as we come with growth strategies and and ways to change and the way ways to take better care of ourselves. Um, you know, we also have to understand that like new strategies don't bring any guarantees, do they? Uh, our lives can change even as we're trying to grow and, and, and find new patterns that support our goals.
And I've just tried to be aware of that in this like very strange season of a global pandemic. Yeah. And, and do you worry about like the anti-science bias of the country killing us or are we going to like just get through it? I mean, because I think part of it is killing some of us. Yeah, that's the trick. So will will the anti-science bias in America have a cost in human lives? It already has. The only question is how many lives will be spent in the correction, right? Like eventually COVID-19 gets everybody's attention in every city in America. But the problem is if you wait until those kind of numbers, it's too late. Um, what do you think about Sweden? I mean, Sweden has gone with a kind of herd immunity strategy. Like what strikes me as exceedingly risky, right? Like It, but, it is. Sweden's, Sweden's per capita death rate isn't great and their curve doesn't look amazing. Um, and their population is a whole lot healthier Right, right, right. States. Right. Like Sweden, right. Sweden has done the work um, societally. They have a great healthcare system. Uh, they have fantastic social support around health, both physical and mental. Um, so it's way less risky for um, Sweden to try that in the United States. And Sweden's death toll is climbing, right? So um, it's too early to say whether their strategy even worked. And we also know that it would not work in the United States because there's so many more people with compound health conditions. Sweden doesn't have the wild economic disparity that we have in the United States. There, there's not so many people living in poverty. There's not so many people without access to health care. And frankly, there isn't the same racialized dynamic to those factors. Um, the... COVID-19 is the latest in a long line of situations in the United States where we have economically disenfranchised people of color and then put them on the front lines of something and had them pay the costs in loss of life. And then the more affluent and the wider people in our country just act like there's it's no big deal because it's not affecting them. And I find that to be wildly immoral. I find that to be wildly anti-Christ. Um, so Science Mike is president. Imagine we elect Science Mike in a oh, we. But that's a terrible idea. Well, now, but now, I mean, I, I <laughs> who knows? I might write you in. But let's just say you get elected president. What, like, t tomorrow, like, we have a special election. What do you do? What would you do right now administratively? Because there are all these unknown, known unknowns. So what would you do? I would uh, rehire and refund the pandemic response teams at the White House level, uh, which Republicans opposed when Trump did that when he came into office, right? Like, yes, absolutely. It was very, 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 very dumb. Um, I remember where I was when I saw that announcement. Mick Mulvaney was making the announcement. It was years ago, to twenty what twenty seventeen or whatever. Right after I, I, I remember watching it on a SEPTA train in Philadelphia and thinking, "This is insane." Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a terrible idea. And any, people, we, we saw it coming. Nobody's like, what happened? <laughs> so what else do you do right now? Like, let's say you could take over tomorrow. What would you do differently? Because right now we're in a mess. Like, what would yeah. you? I would reestablish that committee. I would standardize communication at the federal and state levels about um, what are the standards for reopening and redistancing in economies. Because uh, the, the different messaging is a huge problem. I would start a massive PR campaign around people wearing face coverings 
when they are out because uh, combining facial coverings with social distancing really does meaningfully impact the spread of the virus. So if people are going to open up anyway, let's at least try to open up more safely. Um, I would uh, use the um, Defense Protection Act to um, dramatically increase the scale of production for personal protective equipment as there a possibility for additional waves, possibly waves larger than the first wave could still happen and we want to be prepared for that. Making ventilators as well. I would start working with the Congress to uh, create a sustained ongoing direct stimulus for consumers in the economy, very similar to what Germany did. Um, Germany's economy didn't get cratered by COVID-19. Um, and I would, um, amidst all that, probably uh, push really hard to dramatically and immediately expand Medicare and Medicaid to cover everybody in this country who is not currently insured uh, so that people um, who have COVID-like symptoms don't put off seeing a doctor because they're afraid of bills. Uh, because that costs us more as an economy than treating people. That's that's the trick, right? The the trouble is when we believe like, well, how, who can we afford? How can we afford that? We can't afford for so many people in this country to get sick and die because that eliminates their economic output, which is what makes an economy function. By the way, is workers working? And uh, number two, as that death toll keeps rising. And as more cities have to get refrigerator trucks to hold bodies, guess what? You can open the economy all you want and people will be too afraid to go out and spend money. And now your economic recovery isn't possible. Uh, the, the policies we're making right now, especially at the federal level, are wildly short-sighted, not only from a public health standpoint, but from an economic growth and recovery standpoint. Um, it astounds me. And isn't it, isn't it weird that hospitals and restaurants in this country operate on the same principle? Like the reason why they're both probably so many of them are dying, their hospitals probably going to close in the midst of this. Like, yeah, it's because they operate on razor thin profit margins. And so, like, if you have social distancing and you can only have forty percent people in in the place, you that's your profit margin. Same thing for the hospitals. Like, if if the government could mandate in the United States, which you probably can't like, but every hospital has to open 20% more beds. They just couldn't do it because hospitals run. Most hospitals run on a margin of like keeping every bed full. Like you can't, you have to kind of, which is it, which is a thing where like, Oh my gosh, like what are we, it's almost like a stress test for the country, right? Like what are we learning about how we function as a culture? You have to expand overall capacity. You can't just tell existing hospitals to take more people. Um, so that, and you know, they're doing that in the smart states, Ohio, New York, California. They, they, they're ramping up um, additional extra hospital capacity uh, that's publicly supported. And it should be during a pandemic and a crisis like this. So I, I think about like when we think about American electoral cycles, right? Like we're... I think we're both the most self-critical people in the world and the most patriotic people in the world, right? So like George W. Bush is too patriotic, too rah, 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 like after 9-11, and we get Obama. Obama is too self-critical in the sense of like he, he's not a cheerleader for the country. He's the critical examiner of the country, and he was a great president. And so then we go to the cheerleader-in-chief who is, you know, you know, shipwrecking us right now. But I mean, I wonder how do we figure out 
this dynamic of how we can be this responsible country in the world uh, and try to, I mean, I think it, 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 it's way better if we influence the world more than the Belt Road Initiatives kind of stuff in China. And you'd also be adequately self-critical and not get on a kind of thing like USA, USA. Like we got to curb like problems in China without becoming uh, overconfident and dictatorial and imperialist in our own kind of mindset. Like how do you, do you have any thoughts on that? How we like balance, walk that tightrope? No. <laughs> I have I no have, idea. Everybody, I, I, I have stumped science, Mike. I'm easy to stump. I, you know, uh, you are not. So first off, that's false humility. You are not easy to stump. Uh, you're pretty. You're like you're remarkably thoughtful on everything. <laughs> I well, it's. I understand the sociological implications of nationalism as a meaning making mechanism, and I and I'm just I'm not really into it anymore. No, no, no. I don't, this, I don't have yeah. like a deep sense of national identity. Um, I just have like we have a governmental structure and uh, we already have a country and we should use that to the most good that we can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for me to get back into that. Like what's the, I mean, like even Trump is not really a cheerleader of the United States. Trump is a cheerleader of Trump and yeah, 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 yeah. to yeah. the degree to which the American flag is a prop by which Donald Trump can um, offer himself validation, then sure he will he will cheerlead the country. Um, but actually, in in some way, I think that's <laughs> that's where American nationalism has gone. Is people love America simply because it allows them to kind of narcissistically validate themselves. And America is the only country where you get the nationalism without the socialism, right? Like, and all like you know the uh, who was the French prime minister who uh, candidate who ran on the French. I forget her name, but you know, all, all, I think all, the, all these like European nationalist um, parties are xenophobic and kind of, oh my gosh, we're feeling the pain of globalization. So we're going to keep the immigrants out, the brown people out, the dark people out. But they at least have to promise we're going to make your health care better. America is the only country you can get the nationalism without the socialism. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You're going to have these rallies, they're just pro wrestling rallies. And people will vote against their economic interests, right? Like, um, just to feel. I had a guy on the podcast a couple of years ago who's a Mexico expert, and he wrote this great book on Mexico, which is in a long list of books of people they have on the podcast where the publisher rejected it before Trump, mm -hmm. and, and then said, "Oh no, we want the book." So basically, he's talking about all the positive um, relations between Mexico and the United States. How many Mexican companies have? bailed out American companies like Entenmann's and things like that. And he says, look, it's not like that. Nobody's lost jobs to mm -hmm. Mexican immigrants. He's like, but the few that have, I can tell you all the towns they're in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's like, They've lost jobs to automation mm -hmm. and creative destruction. And like, but you can't, it's really hard when somebody is tweeting, you know, retweeting Donald Trump's angry tweets about immigrants to tell them, well, the process that gave you your iPhone, your Android is letting you tweet the thing mm -hmm. about you being left behind in the global economy, right? I mean, this is just super complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, we are in a globalist society already, done, finished. So there is this response to globalism, which what globalism has really done is 
enable multinational corporations to just expand their vacuuming up of economic value worldwide. And so workers are really frustrated and upset, and they should be because they're exploited worldwide, including in the United States. But their response is like, okay, let's go back to a nationalistic framework. Um, and in doing so, feel xenophobic about outsider and dismissive about fellow members of our own working class um, is a uniquely American and strange phenomenon. And I believe very intentional, by the way. America's like uh, puritanical, Christian, pull yourself up by your bootstraps framing does get intentionally resubmitted by capital powers so that Americans will keep subverting their own interests and and very wealthy people get wealthier. I mean, we're in a we're in a pandemic and Jeff Bezos is trending towards becoming a trillionaire. That is a strange way to structure a society and an economy. And people who are in the Midwest who lost their factory job, what they need to realize is they are not by voting for Trump or frankly for Democrats, setting themselves on some path where they're going to be the next Jeff Bezos. What they're doing is continuing to give a handful of people in their country more and more and more power, not only in the United States, but on the world stage. It is one of the trends I am most concerned about in our global society. So you're anti-capitalist, you're down on capitalism. I am not anti-capitalist, no. I am anti-hyper-capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism because we just see really, really clearly historically it doesn't work. Over so they, and like over Scandin and over Scandinavia, right? Scandinavia is hyper-capitalist, right? I mean, they have some more lazy uh, – on some issues, they have more laissez-faire laws than we do, and they just tax the hell out of it, right? Like, I mean, so they – they kind of create a safety net for the for the people that are inevitably going to lose in the system. If we're going to have a high risk system, we have to kind of be responsible with it. Is that what you're saying? Kind of like we have to kind of have a safety net. If I we're don't think be- there, there's no such thing as an ideal socioeconomic governance model. It doesn't exist. So people who are socialists who think socialism will solve everything, I just think that's naive. Um, I think we take the best from each system as we see it working in other countries. And we just pragmatically apply it. And when things stop working, we change things. The change resistance in cultures is so wild. Um, I get it neurologically why it happens, but I absolutely think we should socialize a lot more things than are currently socialized in the United States. But I'm not saying we should like socialize everything, right? Like China who had socialized everything looked at market economies and went, wow, there's some things here that can really, they de-socialize things in order to get more economic growth. And uh, it is a blend of those systems uh, that that seems to, to work and be effective. But there's no question in my mind, the United States should be more socially oriented economically than it is today. And that the main thing that we're engaged in is not even um, true capitalism, but a strange sort of like, anti-worker capitalism that socializes support systems for corporations. Uh, and that is a very strange dynamic. And it's it's an incredible move of PR that Americans believe that is capitalism. Right, we, when capital, America, we capitalize the gains and socialize the losses, right? So like, right. after the 2008 thing, every, people got loans that they didn't have to pay back. And like, why can't you and I get that? Yeah, because we don't have lobbyists. <laughs> That's so why you, we can't afford lobbyists. So you talk about in the book your struggle with being identified 
as on the spectrum and autistic. And um, I've only talked to you twice in my life. Um, and you strike me as incredibly relationally um, connected. I, I enjoy talking with you. Like when your publicist reached out to me, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, Mike, this is, it'd be great to talk to him again. And you talk about this a little bit in the book, right? With the liturgists and the whole thing. Like, is, is, it, is it a kind of, can you talk a little bit about the, the, the integration journey of, and I think you're a nine on the Enneagram, right? Yeah. And as much as, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. What I really am is a codependent person with PTSD and we call that a nine, but yeah. Well, that's me. Welcome. I'm a codependent person with PTSD. <laughs> I'm Scott. I'm a codependent person with PTSD. Um, mm-hmm. But it strikes me that like, the, it's interesting because you, it seems like you've done battle with this capacity. Most people on the spectrum would not have done as well behind a microphone. Like, and so, so you have, or at least with the audience you have, I mean, I mean, you, you kind of, it, it, it's been a weird dance for you. It seems like mm-hmm. into, into like kind of strange liberation of, uh, I'm talking with people. I'm relational. Like, right? like this medium has made me, um, probably opened up to some things it, 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 through traumatic, it, it, working past traumatic bullying and, and just, you know, school systems that weren't designed for people like you and a religious system that couldn't process your own spirituality. Um, But do you ever feel like when you get behind the mic, like, Oh my gosh, am I fraudulent? Am I hiding? Am I like, never good. Never, never. never. Mm -mm. I, I just get in front of this microphone and tell the truth as best I understand at each moment. Mm. That's it. So when I, when I don't have anything to it it you know, Someone asked me a question I don't know the answer to. There's a time in my life I try to perform an answer. And now I go, gosh, I don't know. Because it's my work about making me feel smart and impressive or is my work about, you know, um, helping people to suffer less. And if it's helping people to suffer less, it means I don't care if I'm an authority or an expert. So when I don't know, I don't know. And when I don't feel it, I don't feel it. I, you know, we have a content calendar that my producer puts together about what I'm supposed to make when, and if I don't have it, I don't make it and I don't post anything. And, um, that kind of cultivating that sort of honesty makes it easy to not feel like a fraud when I do my work, right? All I am right now is I'm just here on a call with you. I don't have any agenda. I don't have any, uh, performative need. I just listen to what you say and then respond with earnestness and sincerity. That's easy work. Will you campaign for Joe Biden or no? No. But, but you're a de- why not? Because uh, you don't want Trump to win. I don't want Trump to win. No. And I will not. Yeah, I obviously won't vote for Trump and I will vote for Joe Biden. So why wouldn't you like just get get on a call or something on the campaign? Like if Joe Biden said, "Hey, Science Mike and I are going to do." If they want to talk to me, sure, I'd talk to him. Yeah, I'd have a lot of thoughts. But you, (laughs) but you wouldn't do anything on your own initiative to get him elected, just because he's such a failed candidate. Or Um, I just have significant concerns about Joe Biden. Age policy, Um, and that's not ageist, right? To say people age differently, like Trump. Trump, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, these are about yeah, uh, these people are on their seventies and, and they don't they do not look like they've lost a step. Biden looks like he's lost a step. Um anytime someone is accused of sexual assault, I take it seriously. And I don't think enough due diligence was done with 
Tara Reid, and I understand that that's complex and difficult. I'm empathetic to that. Um, Joe Biden has a pattern of touching women publicly in a way that makes him uncomfortable. That makes me uncomfortable. Joe Biden has a way of communicating with uh, people of color, especially black people. That makes yeah. me uncomfortable. Um, and I expect more from the person we're going to put in the office of the presidency. And I think of the slate of candidates that we had, he was among the least qualified to be president. And it's not just sour grapes. Um, he's not showing um, that he has a, a learning, teachable disposition. He's, you know, he will be better than Trump. My gosh, he will be so much better than Trump. But like the high bar, we're sitting telling up. people to like, let's take a guy that has likely done fewer sexual assaults and less sexual harassment and is less racist. That is not a candidate I can step up on a platform and tell people, hey, we got to go vote for Joe. I'll vote for him. And I'll say, I will say, we need to get Trump out of the White House. You'll hear me say that a lot, but it won't be, let's let's get Joe in. Now, if he gets an amazing VP pick, we'll see. Who would your VP pick for Joe be? I'd be real happy with Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Amy Klobuchar even, I'd probably get pretty excited about. Um, definitely a woman, um, ideally a woman of color with, you know, organizing or policymaking experience. Well, we've said it all, but uh, my only last question for you is like the shutdown with Gavin Newsom. So I have this conversation with conservatives all the time. I'm in Florida right now and my conservative friends are loving what um, DeSantis is doing and opening mm -hmm. up and, mm -hmm. and you've got a more restrictive kind of thing. You're a, an empirical oriented guy. I mean, this is like, it, 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 do you do you think California is the way to go? Florida is the way to go? I think the fall in California is going to be a lot nicer than the fall in Florida. Yeah. I think the second wave in Florida is going to be horrific based on their current activities. And California will probably be moving into phase three of our reopening. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird too. Like the thing that, troubles me right or, or you know it, or at least keeps me up at night or at least keeps me questioning about corona is the possibility of asymptomatic mm -hmm. typhoid marys so we don't know like you know there was a, a thing in missouri right it was 340 um workers in a meat processing plant all tested positive asymptomatic mm -hmm. and there's other tests in korea and i think there's some now in this country where people have tested have gone through the virus, uh, recovered, and still test positive. It is and a novel virus. We don't know anything about it. I'm so frustrated with the public right now. Everybody's rushing forward like we should have answers. It's a brand new virus, people. One that we know for sure has an asymptomatic presentation and a presentation that eats the lining of your blood vessels and brain. I mean... Holy shit, stay home, calm down. If and you and Fox think, News, Fox News is pushing open back up, but it just came out last week, right? That they're not opening up till September at least. Fox News is a mouth puppet for capital interests. That's all they do. Their job is to manipulate religious and moral conservatives into doing stupid things so companies can make money. Fox News, if they could make five dollars doing human sacrifice on a portion of their viewers, they do it. 
Like it is a deeply immoral, unethical institution. Mike, what and, would it cost liturgists to do human sacrifices on top of their viewers? You're at uh, least thirty dollars, yeah. right? I'm I mean, not. I don't. I'm not a part of the liturgy anymore. So that would be. It would cost you guys. It would cost you guys a lot more. But science, Mike, it would cost you. You know. Yeah, science, Mike, is not the human sacrifice thing. Is I do the opposite. I'll I'll burn the brand for the listener. Um, but yeah, I, I left the liturgist in October last year, so it's been a while since I've been a part. So of what we're saying is, we should, in your opinion, a science Mike, high school dropout who people call empirically and who was one of the smartest people I've ever met, you would say, hey, like we've got to like control the virus more. The California approach is the right approach. It's funny. I had David French on the podcast like four and a half weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. You know, never Trump or conservative, but a libertarian, noted libertarian, like. And I asked him this question and I was surprised he was as a libertarian, like control the virus. I mean, he was, he, he, he's like, it, it's completely irresponsible. And, th- and again, this is a guy whose civil liberty credentials yeah. are impeccable. I mean, y- y- you want to find the libertarians libertarian or the conservatives conservative. This is the guy. And he was like, got to control the virus. I used to be a libertarian and I still am basically a social libertarian. My libertarian right to swing my arm ends where my neighbor's nose begins. Yeah, yeah. And so in situations like viruses, me saying I have the liberty to go wherever I want and not wear a mask actually impacts someone else's liberty. Um, So I don't think we have a lot of true libertarians in the United States. I think we have a bunch of selfish individualists who use libertarianism as an excuse to be assholes. So when the virus ends, if it, you know, whatever, the new normal, whatever, what are you going to do next? Like, what are you looking forward to doing? Getting in rooms with people again. You know, that's what I want to do. That's what I like. I like to go. I mean, my favorite events are like 110 people, small room. We talk together. Have you ever, have you ever, like the people that bullied you, have they, anybody ever, has anybody ever reached out? Because you have enough of national presence and the books and stuff. Has anybody ever said, hey man, I'm sorry. I was a dick. Um, No. I'm sorry. I hope they do. That's okay. I've forgiven them. Uh, uh, I mean, if they need to do that for them, that would be fine. But I'm a, I'm in a good place with all that stuff. Mike, thanks. This was fantastic. Um, I, I hope every listener orders this book. And I'm, um, <laughs> I, I've read it from a place where my life has been not easy of late. Um, mm. And uh, so everybody should get your miracle. And a pain in the ass, embracing the emotions, habits, and mystery that make you, you. Mike, thanks for being you. So good to talk with you again. Yeah, it was great, man. I, I, you know, we'll do it again, I hope. Yeah, be great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.